welcomes all of you, dear brothers and sisters, and it's good to be in the house of the Lord and to study God's Word together. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, See then that ye walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Redeeming the time, or making the most of every opportunity. Why? Because the days are evil. And so it talks there about time, and it talks about the days that we're living in. I wonder if you are making the most of the opportunity that you have. So we believe that we are living in the day of grace. We are living in the day of opportunity. When, when we still have the opportunity to come to Christ, to accept His call. You could say the door is still open. The invitation is still being given. We believe that this is the day of grace. But the Bible makes it clear that we will not always experience this. Mankind will not always experience that open door. That one day, the door, as it were, will be closed. And so, I'm thinking about myself. What am I doing in this day of opportunity? For myself, between me and the Lord, but also, what am I doing as it relates to others around me? Am I making the most of my time? Am I redeeming the time knowing that we are living in the last days? We are living in evil days. As we begin this morning, there's a number of things that have been on my mind this week. As I think about the days that we're living in, and the first goes back to last Saturday, I took my three oldest boys up to uh, the D.C. street meetings, Washington, D.C., to be a part of our conference group that had street meetings there uh, right, right in the middle of D.C. We were, we were close around uh, the White House and around all the national monuments and memorials and so forth, uh, the Capitol, and we, we had street meetings at at least three different spots. We went up early Saturday morning and, and got on the bus with a, a big group from the valley and rode the bus up there and spent the day and got back uh, to Christian Light uh, about 7, 7.30 maybe Saturday evening. And so it was, it was quite an eye-opening experience. Now, I have been there years ago, but it was, it was a new experience for my boys, and I think it was a good experience. But when you go into a big city like that, if you've grown up in the country, <laughs> uh, it can maybe shake you a little bit. You're going to see, and I warned my boys before going, uh, I'm just warning you fellas, you're going to see some really weird things in D.C. today. So uh, just be on your guard. Uh, you know, this is, this is a spiritual battle. <laughs> uh, there's going to be some weird things. There's going to be a lot of immodest things. There's going to be a, a lot of things that might, might shake you a little bit. Just... Uh, 
just be aware of those things. And, and that was right. <laughs> uh, that was certainly right. I, I guess I was just amazed once again at the, the sheer immodesty of our American culture um, as crowds just, just flowed through the streets all day long. Um, but we always usually meet some interesting personalities when we have street meetings like that in, in bigger cities. And maybe you've had some similar uh, yeah, experiences from your past. But towards the end of the day, I had a conversation with a fellow. His name was Keith. I was handing out gospel tracts and, and uh, CDs with Christian music on it. And, and this fellow came strolling by and I said, Sir, would you like some good news? And he stopped and said, ah, sure, why not? And then he asked me a question that, that surprised me. I wasn't expecting. He said, so if Jesus would come back to this land today and walk among men, do you think we would recognize him? I said, well, <laughs> that's, that's a good question. Now, this was coming from a man that didn't look to be religious or Anything like that. Long hair and tattoos and very rough and smelling unique and things like that. And, and so I wasn't expecting that question. I said, well, that's a, that's a good question. I said, um, yeah, I don't know. I said, well, they didn't, the people didn't recognize him the first time. And perhaps we wouldn't. I, I don't know. He said, guess what? I am Jesus. <laughs> and I said, you are not. <laughs> I said, no, you know, you're not Jesus. He said, oh, yeah, I am. <laughs> and, and so we went on with this conversation. He said, well, the Bible says that, you know, God says that when, when you have Jesus in your life, then you're Jesus. I said, well, no, not exactly. It doesn't exactly say that. Uh, it says that we, we, are, we are little Christ and we, we, are, we are to be image bearers. We have the nature of Jesus Christ within us as believers, but we are not actually Jesus. Oh, no, we're Jesus. He said, you can be Jesus too. Well, anyway, so, so we went on for a little bit, and he said, you should look me up on my Facebook. He said, he said you might find that interesting, which, which I did, and, and I realized once again that, no, he was not Jesus. <laughs> uh, anyway, that, that's on my mind. And then we moved into this week, and, and many of you know that, uh, unfortunately, the second largest rock festival in the country is being held uh, here in our county, in southern Virginia, in Halifax County of all places. Who would have ever dreamed? Um, but down at Virginia International Raceway, I, I hope it concludes today. I think, <laughs> I think that's the plan. Uh, but it's been going on since Thursday, perhaps, and... Uh, Maybe 168 different, different shows, or I'm not sure how many groups completely, uh, but it's attracted thousands of people from all over uh, to come to this rock festival. Um, and I, I met someone at the bake shop on Friday uh, that said, oh, you're not down serving food at the festival? And I said, I won't get anywhere close to there. And he chuckled a little bit and he said, but it's a really good thing for our county. And I said, well, maybe financially, but otherwise I'm not so sure. And he just kind of chuckled and walked away. But, you know, there's, 
the groups that are there are, are just purely satanic. If you just simply see pictures of the groups, if, if you hear about the groups and, and what they're into and what they're involved in and their lifestyle, uh, it's, I believe the festival is really a, a worship of Satan. This isn't no little music festival. It's a heavy metal rock festival. And so that's, that's, been a, that's really bothered me this week. The fact that that is in our own, our own neck of the woods. That's in our own little town. And then you've probably heard on the news that uh, Queen Elizabeth of England passed away uh, this past week. That's, that's a big deal, um, at least in our, in our world. That's, that's a big deal. You know, been on the throne for 70 years, 96-year-old lady, and, and, and that creates quite a stir. And then today is the 21st anniversary of 9-11. Now, for some of you younger ones, that, that doesn't mean really anything. But to those of us older ones and not so old, that means quite a bit. We remember that day. We remember that day very well. September 11, 2001. And we remember, you know, where we were when, when we heard about that. We remember the sights that we saw maybe on, on TV somewhere or in newspapers. Uh, it, was a, it was a frightening, it was a frightening time for all of us. It really was. And one thing that I, I remember very well is that that very week, our little ensemble here at Ebenezer, we called ourselves the Ebenezer Ensemble. It was our youth group uh, that, had, that had created uh, a little ensemble, and we were practicing music, and we were pr- planning uh, two weekend tours. But that very week, we were planning to go on our first weekend tour up to Pennsylvania and Maryland, and we were practicing music and getting it polished up and ready to go. And one of the songs that we had been preparing was a song that, that says this, A frightening place, this world of ours. The frantic pace of changing powers where no one plays familiar roles, but in these days, one promise holds. And then the chorus goes, I can ride the morning winds and you are there. I can sail the widest seas and you are there. I can find the darkest night and you are there. Oh Lord, I can never be far from you. And then 9-11 happened. And we were just preparing to, to leave on this weekend tour and sing these songs in just a few days. And you better believe it, that song took on new meaning for us young people. Those were scary times. They really were. And when we sang that song the first night up at Shippensburg uh, Christian Fellowship in Shippensburg, Pennsylvania, that meant something like it had never meant before. And it, just the presence of God ministered to us in a new way as we sang that song. And so there's various things that have kind of went through my mind this week as I'm thinking about what to preach about and thinking about life and thinking about the day that we live in and, and the influences and what's swirling around in, in, in our world and in our country. And so I invite you to Luke chapter 19 for a text this morning. And we want to see what Jesus had to say. These were not words of, of celebration. These were not words of, of, of cheer. These were not words of encouragement. 
But these were words of deep sorrow. These were words of much grief. In fact, Jesus was sobbing as he said these words. And the verses we want to look at in in particular are verses uh, 41 through 44. But before before we get there... Well, no, let's go ahead and read some verses here, and then I'll, I'll give a little context of this passage. But to pick up, why don't we pick up here at verse 37. Verse 37 of Luke 19. And here we have what we know as the triumphal entry, which, as you're going to see, it was very triumphant, at least to some, but not so much to others. Verse 37, and when he, Jesus, was come nigh, even now at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed be the King that cometh in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees from among the multitude said unto him, Master, rebuke thy disciples. And he answered and said unto them, I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. And when he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it, saying, If thou hadst known, even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes. For the day shall come upon thee that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee and compass thee round and keep thee in on every side and shall lay thee even with the ground and thy children within thee and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. Jesus said all this would happen because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. I've titled this message, Knowing the Time. Knowing the Time. And I want, I want you to ponder this question as we go through the next half hour or so here. I want you to ponder this question. What are you doing with what you know? What are you doing with what you know. Now, let's notice here the context or the setting of these verses. There's actually four different little stories in this passage. We have the story of Zacchaeus, and then we move on to the parable of the pounds, and then we move on to the triumphal entry in this passage that I just read, and then it wraps up with Jesus going into the temple and cleaning house, as it were. So we have these four stories. We're not even going to look at the last one, and I just want to briefly notice the first two, but we're spending most of our time on uh, the third story of the four. But we notice here in this story of Zacchaeus, we notice that Zacchaeus thought he was the one who was seeking Jesus. What does it say in verse 3? And Zacchaeus sought to see Jesus for who he was. Okay, so Zacchaeus thinks that he's seeking Jesus. The fact of the matter is that Jesus was seeking Zacchaeus. He just didn't know it. Because we have Jesus' mission statement in verse 10. 
Jesus says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus said, that's why I came. I came to seek and to save the lost. And Zacchaeus was thinking all along that he came looking for Jesus. No, Jesus came on a mission looking for Zacchaeus and, in fact, all of us. He's looking for you today. And if you have never surrendered your heart and life to him, he's calling you today. He's saying, come and follow me. He's seeking you and he wants to save you. And so that's a theme that we see in this passage. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. But there is another theme that is brought out clearly in the parable of the pounds. Now you know in in, in this parable of the pounds, different amounts were given to different ones. And the Master intended for them to put to good use what was given them. To invest it, to make something of it. But just notice here, let's read just a few verses. Verse 11, I want you to pick up another theme that ties into this whole passage. Verse 11, and as they heard these things, the story of Zacchaeus, Jesus added and spake a parable because he was nigh to Jerusalem and because, he, and because they thought that the kingdom of God should immediately appear. So everything was ramping up here. Everything was ramping up towards Jesus, uh, to Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And the crowd was getting very excited, very worked up and very excited that Jesus would be this new deliverer. He would be the one that would come and save them from the Romans. This physical deliverance. It says, they thought that the kingdom of God should immediately appear. He said, therefore, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. Now, does that sound familiar? Does that not sound like he is speaking about himself? A certain nobleman or... or, The Greek literally means someone who is well-born. Someone who is even born of of royal descent. Does that not sound like Jesus Christ? A certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. And he called his ten servants and delivered them ten pounds and said unto them, Occupy till I come, or put this money to work until I come back. Now I want you to get this. Verse 14. But his citizens, his citizens, his own people, hated him and sent a message after him saying, We will not have this man to reign over us. His own citizens hated him and said, we will not have this man to reign over us. Now, the story goes on. Verse 27, this wraps it up. But those mine enemies, which would not that I should reign over them, bring hither and slay them before me. So we have these themes in this passage, building from the very beginning. Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. And then we move into this parable of the pounds, 
where you have this opposition to that. You have this rebellion to that. And so the first theme is that of the heart of God for mankind today. That is the heart of God to seek and to save lost mankind. But it is the rebellious heart of human beings to say, no, we will not have that man reign over me. I can do it my own way. You see, that's the rebellious heart of mankind. And all of this sets the stage for what happens next. And specifically verses 41 through 44, where we see the deep emotion of Jesus pouring out as he enters into Jerusalem for the last time before his death. So Jesus here is offering free salvation. He's offering a relationship with the Heavenly Father. And He says, come through Me to the Father. I will save you. I will give you peace. I will give you joy. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come. That's the invitation that He's giving to mankind in this story and yet today. And the kickback is, we will not have this man to reign over us. And Jesus is moving in to Jerusalem when He knows His life, His work, His mission on earth is coming to a close. And He completely breaks out in sobbing. The emotion that pours out of Him as He considers the contrast of that. And so let's notice here in particular Jesus' pain. I noticed that He was moved deeply by what He saw. When He was come near, He beheld the city and wept over it. And so, we saw here in verse 37 that He was now sort of at the highest point of the Mount of Olives. They had made their way up to the Mount of Olives and now they were just getting ready to go down into Jerusalem. And at this point at the Mount of Olives, was the high point where you could now look down over the city. And it was beautiful. It was magnificent. This was, as the psalmist wrote, beautiful for situation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. There it is. Okay, the psalmist wrote about it. God's people loved the city of Jerusalem, because that's where God dwelt. That's where the presence of God was. That's where they went back to on their pilgrimages. And it was beautiful. And so Jesus is there on this high point, looking over. It's a beautiful panoramic view of the city of Jerusalem. And I want us to note that Jesus is surrounded by an admiring crowd Jesus is surrounded by enthusiastic friends that are cheering and hollering and clapping and having a great time. And and while He is surrounded by this, the star of the show, as it were, is sobbing. (laughs) This does not look like a normal story. Something's wrong here. They're enthusiastic And he's sobbing. You know, there's only two places in the Bible where we we read that Jesus was weeping. 
And the one is in John chapter 11, John eleven thirty five. Jesus wept. And that is the story of Lazarus. He was at the tomb of Lazarus. And once again, I notice his emotion was triggered by what he saw. It says, when he saw Mary weeping, and when he saw the Jews, the friends that had come, when he saw them weeping, his spirit was troubled within him. And Jesus wept. And the response of the people was, behold, how he loved him. But that word there, that word wept in John 11, is a different word than in Luke 19. The one in nine, the the one in nine eleven, the one in in John eleven, is is the word silent tears. He was choked up. He was sort of crying within himself. Sure, there might have been tears coming down his cheeks, but you didn't really hear it. You just observed. Oh, he's struggling emotionally. That's a different word than this one. This one here. In Luke 19, verse 41, is sobbing loudly. He is wailing. <laughs> this is like the, the embarrassing kind if you're among you know, your friends. You, you never wanted to do this in front of people. But he burst into tears as he beheld the city. And I say, why? What, what caused this? What caused this weeping? What caused this weeping was the difference between what His coming could have meant to Jerusalem and what His coming did mean to Jerusalem. Once again, what His coming could have meant and yet what it did. There was a difference in that. And I believe as Jesus pondered that and as He looked down over the city, He burst into tears. You see, Jesus wasn't crying for Himself. Jesus knew full well what was going to happen in the next few days. Jesus knew full well the unimaginable horror that He would face physically in His human body. But Jesus was not crying about Himself. In this passage, Jesus is weeping for others. And He's weeping for the calamities that would come upon His beloved Jerusalem because of their rejection of Him. And it breaks His heart. And between His sobs, this is what Jesus says. He says, verse 42, If thou hadst known, if thou hadst known, that word known and later uh, the word newest in verse 44 is the Greek word gnosko. Gnosko, which is to recognize, or to be aware of, or to understand, or to consider. If you had recognized, if you had only considered, if you had been aware of. And then he says, even thou. So if thou hadst known, but then he reiterates, even thou, or even you of all people. You are God's chosen people. You are not just anyone. But you are the Jews. You are the one that I came for. I am one of you. If thou hadst known, even thou, at least in this thy day, or that speaks of opportunity. 
while you had the opportunity. Today, today in, in this day of grace, even in this thy day, or, or maybe he was thinking, while I was here with you in human body, I was teaching in the synagogues. I was walking among men. I was healing uh, the sick. I was doing miracles. I was right here among you. If thou hadst known, even thou, in this thy day, there's the opportunity now. The things which belong unto thy peace. Or if you would have only known what would bring peace to your life. If you would have only known and considered if you would have truly pondered and taken advantage of the way to peace. It's interesting that the, the word Jerusalem means city of peace. City of peace. But the city of peace did not know the things which belong to their peace. I guess we could ponder that for ourselves here today. We say we are Christians. We are our little Christs. Is that real with us? Do we understand what that means? Are we experiencing that? Are we experiencing the life and the beauty of Jesus within us? Or are we stiff-arming that loving call? Jesus says, if you had only known, the things which would make for peace in your life. But now are they hid from thine eyes. This way of peace has been offered to you, Jesus says. And you have rejected it. And the, the Prince of Peace has come to rule in your hearts. And yet you have pushed him away with the attitude, we won't have this man reign over us. And Jesus says, now these truths are hidden from your eyes. You have lost your opportunity. You have squandered away this day of grace. Over the course of time, we have seen and read, we have heard the cry of God going out for rebellious people. And I just want to notice one here in Psalm 81. Psalm 81. We have the heart cry of God for a rebellious people. God is saying that I have so much to offer you, dear people. If you would only listen to me. If you would only obey me. Look how the end could be so different. But instead, look where you are today. Once again, I believe Jesus was grieving largely over the difference of what His coming could have meant and yet what His coming did mean. There was quite a difference there. Psalm 81, verse 10. I am the Lord thy God, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt. Open, wide, open thy mouth wide and I will fill it. Well, that sounds wonderful. Who wouldn't want to take that on? But my people would not hearken to my voice. And Israel would none of me. So I gave them up unto their own heart's lusts. And they walked in their own counsels. Oh, that my people had hearkened unto me. And Israel had walked in my ways. 
I should soon have subdued their enemies and turned their hand against my hand against their adversaries. The haters of the Lord should have submitted themselves unto him, but their time should have endured forever. He should have fed them also with the finest of the wheat, and with honey out of the rock should I have satisfied thee. That's, that's the heart cry of God. That's what God is offering to his people. I will care for you. Okay, so my, my call to come to me is not a bad call. It's not something that any person in their right mind would resist. And yet, we in our rebellious ways, in our human sinful ways, we think that our way is better. We don't want to submit to the loving call of Jesus Christ. And we say, no, I'll do it my own way. And time and time again, the Scripture makes it clear the result of such a decision. Now, let us notice here Jesus' prediction. We noticed His pain, but let us notice Jesus' prediction. Jesus goes on to give prophecy with pinpoint accuracy what the result of this rejection would be. He outlines what the result of this rejection would be. And it is the awful devastation of beautiful and magnificent Jerusalem. Jesus says, For the days shall come upon thee, if thou hadst known at least in this thy day, there was a day of grace. There was a day of opportunity. But the days shall come upon thee, and this is a different day. This is a day of reckoning. This is a day of judgment. For the days shall come upon thee, and we know from history that this day took place in AD 70 under the command of Roman general Titus who came in and destroyed, I mean demolished, beautiful Jerusalem. This was approximately 30 years or so after Jesus spoke these words. But Jesus predicted five specific aspects of the Roman attack Upon Jerusalem. And I say once again, it is with pinpoint accuracy. Why shouldn't it be? It's the Word of God, right? Okay. But it's amazing to notice when you read this and then you read in history and you can read some of this from the the great historian Josephus. He writes about this in great detail. But the first, the first of these five specific aspects was the building of an embankment. Or here in this we read, Thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee. That's what we read here in the King James. Now when you think of a trench, maybe you think of a ditch. Uh, Maybe you think of something like that. In fact, it's a different meaning here. Let me just read this. Uh, By Albert Barnes, he describes this a bit, how they built this embankment or this trench. It is not a pit or large ditch, but a pile of earth, stones, or wood thrown up to guard a camp and to defend it from the approach of an enemy. This was done at the siege of Jerusalem. Josephus informs us that Titus, in order that he might compel the city to surrender by famine, built a wall around the whole circumference of the city. This wall was nearly five miles in length and was furnished with 13 castles or towers. Now listen to this. This work was completed with incredible labor in ten days. 
in ten days. The professed design of this wall was to keep the city in on every side. Does that not sound like verse 43? They shall compass thee around and keep thee in on every side. That was the professed design, to keep them in on every side. And Albert Barnes concludes by saying, never was a prophecy more strikingly accomplished. And so there was the building, the, the building of this embankment or trench or wall. Secondly, there was the surrounding of the city or the laying siege to the city that is uh, prophesied here. Thirdly, there was the destruction of the city. The day shall come upon thee, thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee, compass thee around, keep thee in on every side, lay thee even with the ground. There was the destruction of the city. The city of Jerusalem was burnt with fire. Completely burnt with fire. There was also the killing of the city's inhabitants. And the numbers vary a bit, uh, but maybe 600,000 or more people died as a result of that. And then there was the complete leveling of the city. Lay thee even with the ground, and thy children within thee, and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another. Now, I read here from Josephus. Titus commanded his soldiers to dig up the city, and the whole compass of it was leveled, except three towers. In fact, this was prophesied. In Micah chapter 3, verse 12, Therefore shall Zion for your sake be plowed as a field, and Jerusalem shall become heaps, and the mountain of the house, or the place where the temple stood, as the high places of a forest. So where the temple once stood shall become a huge thicket. Prophesied way back in Micah. Josephus says, this plowing was so fully done that they who came to see it were persuaded it, or Jerusalem, could never be built again. It was so demolished. It was so leveled. It, the ground was so plowed that they said, oh, that'll never be built again. That's utter destruction. Once again from Josephus, I read, all hope of escaping was now cut off from the Jews, together with their liberty of going out of the city. Then did the famine widen its progress and devour the people by whole houses and families, the upper rooms of women and infants that were dying by famine. And the lanes of the city were full of the dead bodies of the aged, the children also. And the young men wandered about the marketplaces like shadows, all swelled with the famine, and fell down dead wheresoever their misery seized them. For a time the dead were buried, but afterwards, when they could not do that any longer, they had them cast down from the wall into the valleys beneath. When Titus, the Roman general, on going his rounds along these valleys, saw them full of dead bodies and the thick purification running about them, he gave a groan and spreading out his hands to heaven, called God to witness this was not his doing. It's a horrible picture. A horrible picture. And Jesus is crying out, if you had only known, if you had only, even thou, while you had an opportunity, the things which belonged for your peace, the things which make for peace, you had the opportunity, but now they're hid from your eyes. 
You see, Jesus predicted that this would happen. And once again, I, I ask why? Why did this have to happen? Verse 44, Because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. Or, because you didn't recognize the time of God's coming to you. And you know, there's a part of me that says, oh, I'm, I'm sorry for them. Like they, they, they just missed it. Uh, they didn't wreck. It's not that at all. <laughs> it's not as tame or lame as it looks up front. Jesus implies that there was opportunity. There was sufficient opportunity. And He had told the Jews time and time again that, that if you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. And, and I'm doing these works that you should know Me and you should know who I am. And, and then they would always say, well, show us another sign. Give us another sign. And if you don't believe this, then you won't. I mean, it was clear. It was clear. Jesus made it as clear as He could that He had come as the Messiah to save their people. So, it wasn't simply that, oh, they just missed it. Oh, someone should have told them. No. No, they, they knew. They knew. In John chapter 1, we read that He was in the world, and the world was made by Him, and the world knew Him not. That's the same word. Gnosko. The world didn't recognize Him. His own creation did not recognize Him. They didn't understand who he was. They didn't perceive, they didn't think through it. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But to them that received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. And that word received to them that received him is not just simply, yeah, sure, I'll take that. No, it is a strong term. It means, I want that. It's aggressive action. Give that to me. Does that, does that speak of, of your desire for God? Does that speak of your desire for the gospel? Does that speak of your interest in being a part of the kingdom of God? I want that. Give it to me. I have to have it. But to them that received Him, to them, to those gave He power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on His name, a daily yielding yourself to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And so I ask you yet this morning, what are you doing with what you know? Jesus said, this all happened because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. What are you doing with what you know? You know, we live in a very fertile, spiritual environment. Think about that. For most of us, we have grown up in Christian homes where the Word of God has been taught. Homes with order. Homes with discipline. Homes that value the things of God. We have grown up, for the most part, in Churches that believe the Bible and, and preach the Bible and strive to live out the Bible. Most of us have went through Christian schooling. Most of us have groups of Christian friends surrounding us. In many ways, our lives have been saturated with the Word of God. We're without excuse. But what are we doing with what we know? 
Oh, we know a lot, do we not? But what are we doing with what we know? Someone has said that you will never know more than you believe. You will never know more than you believe. (laughs) Think about that a moment. I ask you, are you allowing what you know to radically change who you are? Are you daily surrendering your life to the one who came to seek and to save the lost? Or are you stiff-arming his loving call with the attitude of, we won't have that man reign over us? Oh, you wouldn't say it like that, would you? No, no, we wouldn't say it like that. But what is going on inside your heart, inside your life? Let's just close with a few verses from Romans chapter 13. Where the Apostle Paul once again reminds us of this day that is at hand. In Romans 13, there is a day that is at hand. Yes, today we live in that day of opportunity, in that day of grace. Jesus Christ is still calling us to come to Him. The invitation is still open. But there's another day that's coming. Verse 11. And that, knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than we believed. Or time is moving on, dear people. It's high time to wake up. To know the time, to consider the day we live in. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. Knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, may God help us to take seriously the days in which we live and to be those that are anxiously awaiting His return, those who are ready, anticipating that. Let's have a song.